0: Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your precious promises that we have in your word that we can hold to, we cling to, we believe in them, we see them fulfilled. Just as we have seen them done, Father, we long to see the completion of them all, the fulfillment of them all, every promise you've made us yes in Christ. Father, we see in the Old Testament a prophecy of a coming time when your spirit will be poured out on all flesh. We know the promise of our Savior who told those disciples that he would send the Spirit. We see in your word that promise fulfilled. Father, today as we study, as we think, as we hear, as we respond, Lord, may it be your voice that we hear. May your Spirit enlighten the word that you've given us and speak into our hearts, conquer our resistance, soften what's hard, fix what's broken. Lord, if our thinking is wrong, change it. Lord, if our perceptions are incorrect, redirect us. Lord, if our faith is small, I pray that you would, would grant us more. Lord, you would cause us to have a holy dissatisfaction with anything less than what you created us to be and anything less than what you intended us to do and As a church, anything less than what we're supposed to be and accomplish. Father, may we not be satisfied with that because your spirit in us is working for more. Father, we declare today that on our own, apart from your spirit, we are powerless. And all of our wisdom is worthless. And our efforts are fruitless. But Father, through your spirit filled with your spirit, we can do everything that you command us to do. Um, Through your spirit, you will build your kingdom, and the gates of hell will not prevail against a church that's kingdom-focused and kingdom-driven, word-centered, and and Holy Spirit-empowered. So, Father, we declare a need for you today, and, Lord, as we open up this word, hit us with it, but, Lord, not just information today. Spirit and truth. Father, we ask for spirit and truth today, Lord, to be present. We want to meet with you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I was having a conversation with someone the other day, and it's the sort of conversation we've been encouraging you to have, just simply put, brawly, just gospel conversations. You know, regardless of, of how finely tuned your theology is, your soteriology, how God saves, who works and how God works, and what comes first the responsibility of man the sovereignty of god we can discuss that and i can sure, certainly share with you my take what i think is a biblical take but i do know this here's one constant if we'll have more gospel conversations we'll see more people come to christ and praying for those opportunities is something we all can do that's praying to be obedient to what god has commanded us to do you know have those gospel conversations but if you've had very many of these whether it's conversations with friends or family or neighbors, I will bet most of you, if not all of you, have heard a response something like this. And it's sort of like a checking you response. I believe in God. Yeah, I believe in God. It's sort of like, you know, the shutdown, like, okay, conversation ends here, right? I believe in God. You believe in God. We're good. We don't have to go any farther with this, right? And I started thinking about this question. I mean, isn't, isn't God enough? I mean, after all, it's hard to go to many places on the planet that you're not going to find people who don't believe in God. It's hard to find many cultures that don't acknowledge some form of God. I, I think it's sort of hardwired into us. Not sort of, it is. I, it, it's written into us to see a need for God. Is it, isn't it enough that we can just agree all around the planet with lots of people, God? Isn't God enough? Well, the answer to that question is, and should be for each of us, emphatically, No. Because if we're left to our own ideas of God, our our own descriptions of God, our own images of God, imaginations about God, and our own cultural representations about God, what we end up with is other gods. Because there's something unique about the God of the Bible that separates him from the God of ancient Roman cultures or ancient Norse cultures or, as Bill was speaking, Islamic religion or so many other faiths around the world, Hinduism, Buddhism, there's something unique and special about the God of the Bible, that we have to get the God of the Bible right so that we know him and understand him and love him and surrender our lives to him. And one of the most unique components about the God of the Bible is that the God of the Bible is triune. He exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And getting God right is critical to us. You've heard me use this quote multiple times, and I see its fruit, its importance over and over again. What we think about God is the most important thing about us. And so as we now um, really dive into the book of Acts, we get to chapter 2, and one of the most critical moments in history takes place. we got to get this right. We've got to get this part of our understanding of God right, we need to have the right foundation of the Holy Spirit because if we don't, we're robbing ourselves of so much, we're crippling our work to a degree we can't even imagine. And and ultimately, not only are we doing disservice to our calling, but we're not honoring God. We're being sacrilegious to God. We're blaspheming God to not understand Him correctly and get Him right. So I want to just encourage you today, this is not me sandbagging, it's just a bit of encouragement. Be patient today. It's important that we don't fly over some of these things. It's important that we don't rush through them too quickly. It's important that we don't just jump to the point of, how does this make me feel? What am I supposed to do? Um, What am I supposed to do tomorrow when I go to work? And let's lay a careful foundation of the Holy Spirit. And what the book of Acts begins to reveal to us about God's work, God's person, God's mission, and our part in it through the Holy Spirit. We're in Acts chapter 2 today, Acts chapter 2 verse 1. If you have a Bible, open it up with me, you can follow along, I think. I know we're having some dysfunction there, it's back, good. Adapt and overcome, thank you tech team back there. Acts chapter 2 verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear, each of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God, and all were amazed and perplexed. Saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. There's so much for us to try to unravel through this passage, and so much for us to think about that's going to be foundational for the rest of Acts. That if we have some cracks in our foundation here, they'll show up later. So let's spend a little time talking about Pentecost for a moment. The name Pentecost didn't arrive. Or arise after the event. It already existed. This is not something that historians or church leaders or the church itself named that event that took place that day in Acts, that historical event. But the day of Pentecost was in new times the name of a celebration that the Jews participated in. It took place 50 days after Passover. So if you're looking for a timeline of Jesus' life, Passover, and then his 40 days with his disciples, and then his ascension And now they began to wait about nine days. And here we see Pentecost, the Feast of Pentecost, 50 days after Passover. This is a one-day festival. Typically, sacrifices were offered, and it centered around the harvest, particularly first fruits. And you can look up some of these passages. For time's sake, I won't read all these texts. Exodus 23, Exodus 34, Leviticus 23. You can also cross-reference it, Numbers 28, Deuteronomy 16. Those of you who are really deep diving, you can see this Feast of Pentecost, wherein they recognize God who has blessed them with the harvest, and this is the beginning of a season of harvest. So it's a series of firstfruits. So think of the spiritual picture here, the metaphor happening. Just as the Jews celebrated a harvest season beginning, and so firstfruits be- mean those that come at the beginning Indicating to us there's a lot more to come. First fruits are a promise of what's about to happen. So now the harvest season is coming. Now you see in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit comes as a first fruits. What he's doing there now, what he's launching now, what he's initiating now is just the beginning. This is the first fruits of the final season of harvest for the kingdom of God in the church. And it begins here at Pentecost. God is now launching his disciples out. Into the harvest with power, and so there's a there's a sort of connection there, a bridge to the old to the Old Testament. And we see this in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter five. This idea of the Holy Spirit as the first fruits. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Says 2 Corinthians five five, Ephesians 1.13 and fourteen. In Him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the glory of God. It's the beginning. So that day, the Holy Spirit launched into existence the church. Shortly thereafter, immediately thereafter, thousands came to faith in Christ. These are the first fruits. So a full harvest is going to come. How is the church going to grow and develop? How is the harvest going to come? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's going to enable it. Remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus that day in John chapter 3? He said to him, You must be born again. And then he began to describe how a man is born again. He says the spirit blows where it will. We don't know how, but the spirit blows. And when the spirit blows and hearts are changed and minds are changed, new life is enabled. And so now we see this coming of new life. But Pentecost also had additional meaning for the Israelites. After the era of exile, look at that in the Old Testament. After time, their long exile in in Babylon, Pentecost began to mean something else it began to be associated with the commemoration of when God gave the law. And so as a remembrance each year of God giving the law on Mount Sinai, Pentecost would be celebrated. This is when God blessed us the law. An ancient historian, Philo of Alexandria, who actually wrote these words at a time earlier than the book of Acts, earlier than the Gospel of Luke, he says this about the giving of the law. From the midst of the fire that streamed from heaven, there sounded forth to their utter amazement a voice, For the flame became the articulate speech in the language familiar to the audience. What was the giving of the law? Here's God's word to people. This is the timeless law of God by which God ordained that life should be lived, that he should be worshipped. And so God gives us to the nations. So now see this fulfillment. Now at Pentecost, God is now drawing the nations. He's speaking through the Holy Spirit, calling the nations to himself. In the Old Testament, Pentecost depicted God giving the law. Now we see the new era. God is now giving us the Spirit. The law only brings death, but the Spirit enables life. So you have this this picture here that those first century believers would have understood a lot better than us 21st century ones of the connection to the Old Testament. Something is being fulfilled here in God's salvation story. So let's look at what happened for a moment. The what of Pentecost. Look back at verse 2 again. Some key words just for a moment. Notice these key words. And suddenly there came from heaven... Like a mighty wind, it filled their entire house where they were sitting, divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Here are the key things to sort of focus around. Suddenly, suddenly, this is not human. This is not manufactured. This is not manipulated. In fact, the text even gives us some details here. What were they doing when the Holy Spirit fell on them? They were sitting. They were waiting This is not passive waiting. This is obedient waiting. And And I read one commentary that said the language of prayer in Scripture is always standing or kneeling, not sitting. So they probably weren't praying. But I think that's reading a bit much into the text. This much I think we can rightly infer. And we talked about this last week, the convergence of the promises of God, the sovereign will of God, and our obedience and our praying. We pray these things because God has promised these things. And God, who's promised the end of these things, also promises the means to accomplish those ends. And the means that we accomplish the promises of God, the plans of God, is by our obedience and by our praying. So I would surmise that these men, this not just men, men and women, these 120 that had gathered, knowing that Jesus had promised them that he would send his spirit to them, knowing that power was going to come, were seeking it. They're praying for it, waiting. But they don't manufacture it. They don't manipulate it. Suddenly it comes without notice, and God falls on them. And then you see these words, like, as of. This wasn't just wind blowing. The best way that Luke knew to describe this was something like wind began to blow. And that speaks again to the divine nature of it. Something out of their control, something beyond their capacity. All of a sudden, this thing blew through hard and they knew where it came from. This is God. And then even the fire, maybe we picture this in literal terms. But something above them the best he could liken it to was like, like fire on them, and it fell on them, and it happened to them, and they, and they saw it, they experienced it. There's something, there's something visceral here. And Keep in mind, again, the connection, the bridges to the Old Testament. In Hebrew, ruach, the word for wind, is also the word for spirit. Uh, Philip referenced it in the text he read in the Gospels. Remember the prophet Ezekiel? The prophet Ezekiel, God gives him a vision, he sees a vision of dry bones. Do you Remember? And Ezekiel asked, or God asked Ezekiel, he asked Ezekiel, will these bones live? Ezekiel responds something like this, Lord, only you know. And the answer is this, until God's spirit blew on them, they did not live. It was the spirit of God that gave them life. And so it was the wind that blew, but it was the spirit of God that that wind depicts, and it's life-giving. So here's this picture of God working through wind, and certainly you can see the imagery in the Old Testament. Remember some of the imagery of God in fire. God spoke to Moses through a bush that burned but was not consumed. We see God's judgment also often expressed in fire. We see the, the fire of God as a theme in the, in the Old Testament. So now God appears, and so what's the point of wind and fire? Divine God. This is not anything that could be described naturally. It's, super, it's supernatural. And so now they were filled with, they were consumed with, they were overcome by and as a result, something miraculous happened. They began to speak in other tongues. Al Mohler in his commentary on the book of Acts says, These events can only be explained as acts of a sovereign God working out redemptive history according to his will. This is something of heaven coming down to earth. It's a visitation of God. Let's zero in on a, on a phrase for a moment. It says, They are all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, this is something we're going to develop more as we go through the book of Acts because we're going to see frequent references to the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit does and what it does in people, what it does to people, what it does through people. So this won't be our only touch on this theme, but I want to, I want to initiate our study on that with this statement. Being filled with the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts is not the same thing as a phrase we would use being baptized with the Holy Spirit. These are different things. In fact, some of the things we're going to see in Acts are unique in the context of Acts. You're going to see a group of people who appear to be believers but say they don't know the Holy Spirit. And so some have used that as a precedent-setting statement. You can be saved but not have the Holy Spirit. That's not what that passage is teaching, we'll get to that later. What we see instead in the book of Acts is this. Baptism and filling are different things. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, scripturally, really couldn't be plainer. And the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the means by which Christ builds his church, is the means by which Christ assembles individual parts through salvation and regeneration and places them into his body. We are baptized into Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, In one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Here's the grand irony of the times in which we live when it comes to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The singular event through which God supernaturally unifies all of His people has become one of the most divisive concepts in all of Christendom. Do you see the irony of that? The baptism of the Holy Spirit is not that which ought to be dividing people. It's the one thing that unites all Christians. If you are a Christian, truly, if you have been born again, you've been born again by God's Spirit, you have been baptized into Christ. You belong to Christ. Galatians three twenty six, and 27. In Christ Jesus, you all are sons of God through faith. For as, many, as of you, many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So again, in one spirit were all of us, all of us, not some of us, baptized into his body. So what is Paul saying here in the clearest of terms? Spirit baptism is equivalent with regeneration. Those who are truly redeemed. The sovereign act by which God makes us one with Christ, incorporates into his body, that's regeneration, that's spiritual baptism. You don't seek nor need to seek a post-regeneration baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Bible doesn't teach that. God doesn't require that. What Paul's saying to the Corinthians and therefore to us is this, if you're in Christ, you've already been spirit-baptized. You've been baptized into Christ. It's the the divine work of God. You're not a Christian because you believe the right things. You're not a Christian because you're trying hard to do the right things. You're not a Christian because you, in some sort of nebulous sense, look at Jesus as this great moral figure, ethical leader, lifestyle uh, pace setter, and try to follow him. If you are in Christ, it's because you've been supernaturally born again. You have the Spirit of God in you, and that's baptism. John MacArthur in his commentary says this, in contrast to much errant teaching today, the New Testament nowhere commands believers to seek the baptism of the Spirit. It's a sovereign, single, unrepeatable act on God's part and is no more an experience to be repeated than are its companions justification and adoption. If you've been justified by Christ, you don't need to seek re-justification. If you've been adopted into his family, you don't have to be readopted. These are permanent. If you've been baptized in the Spirit, then that means you belong to him. You are born again. The filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is different in Acts. The filling of the Holy Spirit, we see something that is an experience. And we see this experience repeated again and again. And in fact, the book of Ephesians, Paul says that we should be filled with the Holy Spirit. We're commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's not just once in a while. The language of Ephesians is a continuous act of being filled with the Holy Spirit. You ought always to be being filled with the Holy Spirit, is the literal interpretation. All the time, always, you should be seeking to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be overcome with Him, to be controlled by Him, to be emptied of yourself and filled with Him, to be submissive to His will, to be walking with Him. These are not terms that are at war with one another. These are terms that are companions with one another. We ought always to be being filled with Him. So though Peter was filled on the day of Pentecost, as were the others, he's filled again in Acts chapter 4, verse 8. And you've got many of the same people in Acts chapter 2 were filled again in Acts 4, 31. In Acts 6, verse 5, you see Stephen as a man being full of faith in the Holy Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit. Yet in Acts 7, 55, he's being filled again. Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts 9, 17, and again in Acts 13, 9. And we'll see this repeated again and again. Ephesians 5, 18 says, Be filled with the Holy Spirit. The confession of sin, desire for holiness, the surrender to God's will. The walking faithfully with Him, all these things are components of walking by the Spirit. Again, John MacArthur says the baptism with the Spirit grants the power that the filling with the Holy Spirit unleashes. We have the Holy Spirit in us or else we're not His. The Bible says the Holy Spirit is the deposit which guarantees that we're in Christ. Scripture makes it plain, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't belong to Him. But yet that filling, that special visitation of God, whereby He empowers us for specific tasks, purposes, events, and calling, that's what we should seek. We should seek that God's Spirit should fall on us so that we can do what God wants us to do the way He wants us to do it, and we should seek it over and over and over. Let's look at the tongues here just for a moment, because we're going to see this phenomena arise again. We'll talk about this as it does. Sometimes we see a contrast, or we'll hear people making a contrast. Well, what about tongues in the list of spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians? And how does that fit with Acts? The precedent-setting understanding of tongues is formulated here in Acts chapter 2. You sometimes hear the words that tongues were ecstatic utterances. I would agree with the term ecstatic only as much as the word ecstatic means excited, unexpected, beyond their control. Yes, absolutely. The tongues that we see in the book of Acts were absolutely ecstatic, but these were not incoherent babblings. These are not the sort of things that you might hear on late night Christian television. This is not the sort of thing that someone can say, hey, just let your tongue go. You can learn this. You can do this. This is not the sort of thing that you're going to pick up at a weekend retreat or a camp. God's spirit fell on them and something supernatural happened. And these men, some of them not very educated in worldly terms, but Hypereducated in spiritual terms, began to speak words they didn't understand. But the words that they spoke, lots of people did. In fact, it was so amazing to them, they began to note there are people from all over who have gathered here. Why? It's Pentecost. We've come here for the celebration. We've come here the, for the feast. And the loudness of the wind that blew, whatever that was, the sound of God's Spirit falling, the sight of God's Spirit falling, but now the utterance of those God, that God filled with His Spirit talking created quite a buzz, and people began listening. It's not incoherent. It's intelligible language. And again, the Scripture couldn't be plainer here. I'm not pointing out anything that Scripture doesn't say. It's not opinion. It's inarguable. They begin to speak, and so this person from this region and this person from this land and this person from this country begin to hear them speak, and what are they hearing? They're hearing the words of God spoken to them in their own language. So it's supernatural, supernatural communication. What seems to be happening here in a very powerful way, so vivid, It's an absolute reversal of the curse that God brought on mankind way back in the book of Genesis at the Tower of Babel. Those of you who've been studying Genesis with us on Wednesday night will probably remember the Tower of Babel. What happens there? I'll give you the quick thumbnail sketch for time's sake. Peoples of the earth begin to gather together. The nations of the region begin to gather together for religious purposes, religious slash political purposes. And they were going to design a religion that was entirely man-centered that would elevate them. They could reach all the way to the heavens. It was an elevation of man and their will, and their strength, and their abilities, uniting themselves in the ultimate statement of humanism. This is the greatness of man on display, and we can reach up to the heavens. And what did God do? God scattered them, and God also scattered their languages. He says, no, This you will not You will not establish a religion this way. You will not establish a man-centered, man-worshipping, man-honoring culture this way. And God broke them up and divided them up by language, and they were confused. Babel simply means, as you would think, we get the word babbling from it. He brought confusion on them with languages. And now those who were constructing a tower couldn't communicate anymore. They couldn't speak. And everything that they had purposed, everything that they had desired, just crumbles, just crumbles. God scattered them. But what does he do here? God is not scattering the nations now. God is gathering the nations now. God is making emphatically plain that the gospel message that he gave to the disciples is not just for them. And it's not just for Jews. It is for the nations. It's for every language, every tribe, every people group, everywhere. Regardless of ethnicity, regardless of language, regardless of background, regardless of culture. Pagans, Jews, everyone all over the planet, this is for them. And to make it clear, I'm going to speak the truths in language that they understand. It's a complete reversal. It's God saying, I'm calling now the nations to myself. Remember, it's the beginning of first fruits. What's the promise of eternity? What's the promise of revelation? One day we'll be worshiping together forever. Perfect enjoyment, perfect joy, perfect peace of God. In him is fullness of joy. That's where we're going to be. And together, enjoying the pleasures of God will be people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. Pentecost is the first fruits of that. The fulfillment of it will be experienced in heaven, and Pentecost is the initiation of it. So it invites the nations to follow Christ and his kingdom. The nations, all the nations are invited. They gather that day, and we'll see the fruit of this beginning to take place in what immediately transpires, which we'll look at next week. Now here's something kind of interesting. I just want to make a note. Maybe tuck this one away because this is going to be important later. This is critical, okay? It's critical then and still critical now. The people recognize the words spoken. Is what the Scripture says. They recognize them. Okay, so that would be akin to me. I'm, I'm there and I'm, I'm from, uh, from the Arabian Peninsula, for instance. And as I'm listening, these guys aren't speaking Hebrew. They're speaking Arabic, for instance. I, I understand the words. Okay, they recognize the words, but they didn't understand them. I mean, I recognize that this is my language, but I don't know what you're talking about. You follow? It's a... It's a picture of how God works here. So they, they recognized the words. They didn't understand them. This would require something more than just miracles. This would require gospel preaching. Now this is a lesson that I'm afraid large swaths of modern day Christendom have missed. Miracles don't save people. You're going to see some significant miraculous works of God in the New Testament. You're going to see some that just permeate the book of Acts. And in each time they do, they're breaking through barriers, they're establishing the authority of, they're displaying the power of. We see these miracles happening in the book of Acts, but miracles on their own don't save people. It's the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit at work through the preaching of the gospel, wherein, whereby people are saved. And so what this does is empowers the gospel mission. It doesn't replace it or supplant it, or supersede it, or exceed it. It enables it. So what happens immediately next? When they're all asking them this question, what does this mean? What's the answer? Ultimately, the answer what it means comes in the message that you're going to hear next. When Peter gets up and gives the gospel, that's what this means. This is the fulfillment of God in Christ. That's what this means. So whatever miracle that you see, whether it's some supernatural healing that God performs, whether it's the giving of sight to the blind or the ability to walk to the lame or whatever it may be, those acts in and of themselves do not save. People must hear and respond to the gospel. There's got to be preaching and truth. Just as a footnote too, and again, I may be answering a question you're not asking yet. You may be asking this later as we get into the book of Acts. Any suggestion that you hear, teaching that you hear that salvation or a subsequent event, baptism of the Holy Spirit, will always be accompanied by speaking in tongues, that that's a mark of the Holy Spirit, and if you don't have it, you should be seeking it, or you're lacking something, or true salvation is marked by it, you're going to encounter at least three insurmountable obstacles when it comes to Scripture. Okay, First is this, it's not taught that way in the New Testament. It's just simply not taught that way. Not in the book of Acts, not anywhere else. It's also not sustainable based on the salvation experiences that you see of other people in the book of Acts. This is not normative. Did these men speak in tongues? Yes. Does every believer? Absolutely not. Um, Speaking in tongues is recorded in three instances, and we're going to look at each of those as they come. It's Acts 2, it's Acts 10, it's Acts 19. And speaking in tongues for all believers is explicitly contradicted in Paul's teachings, and the Holy Spirit's teachings, through Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 are all apostles? These are rhetorical questions. Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? Of course, the answer is no. And then again, the idea that a second baptism of the Holy Spirit is normative, expected, required, or even taught is far into the Scripture. So we'll see those again. But this is the critical question. So again, be patient. This is the critical question, both then and now. People are seeing this, and they're hearing this, and it's supernatural and it's evidence, not internal, it's external. You know, the, Something like a wind and something akin to fire and then these tongues, these are unavoidable things. What does it mean? What does this mean, they said? What does this mean? Let me give you a few thoughts on that. First thing it means is this, in the biggest of big pictures, this is part of the salvation story. That really begins in Genesis. It's another event in God's great timeline of redemption, of what God has done, what God is going to promise. It's another unrepeatable saving act of Christ. Um, In Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit was poured out on these 120. That was a fulfillment that the Father had given. Um, That was a fulfillment of the promise that Jesus had given. It's a final transition from the old era where you had shadows and and forms to the new era where now we see clearly it's Christ and the spirit of Christ and the, the work of Christ through his church and everything begins to be real and now we're in what scripture would call very broadly in these last days in these last days it's the birthday of the church it's the beginning of the age of the spirit it cannot be repeated it does not need to be repeated any more so than does the birth of Christ or the death of Christ or the resurrection of Christ or the ascension of Christ Thinking of the divine timeline of God's salvation story, this is one more culminating event. And now the Spirit has come to his church. After Pentecost, how does one become a believer? By being baptized by his Spirit. A person receives the Spirit when he repents and believes. This is a unique event. This is a historical event. This is not something that we should expect to see over and over and over and over again. It's all part of that divine historical timeline of salvation. Second thing we should know about it is that equipped the apostles, this unique group, first-century group, for their unique roles in the development of the church. They had a unique role in the development of the church. They were the first proclaimers of gospel truth. They were the first witnesses of his resurrection. They were the first givers of what would become scripture. These were the ones that were the first penetrators of the darkness, establishing the authority of God's Word, the veracity of the resurrection as eyewitnesses of Christ. And some things happen in that first century that I don't think are normative or will be repeated. But they have a unique role, a unique responsibility that God empowered them to do. I mean, the evidence of that's going to be clear, and I reference at the end of your notes, one of the evidences of that is going to be clear when Peter gets up to speak. I mean, I wonder sometimes, this is just my mind just meandering through these texts as Peter speaks to thousands there on the steps of the temple so boldly you have to think there were a handful of those people who had interviewed Peter not so long ago around that campfire saying hey you're a Galilean, you talk like them hey I think I've seen you weren't you with him and you remember he denied them he denied knowing Jesus he did it three times the third time calling curses on himself can't you imagine some of those people listening to Peter preach at Pentecost saying who is this guy this cannot be the same guy. They were super empowered, and later they would do miraculous things. But it's not just the apostles and their unique role. And this is a point where I wish I had a little bit more time that we could hammer this out a bit, because I want to make sure we get this. And I don't know if this is an issue that you have, or uh, maybe a little hitch in your understanding of the book of Acts, but I encounter it sometimes with individuals, so I'm assuming it may affect some of you. Sometimes there's this, if not conscious, at least subconscious, Sense that we're not exactly on the hook for the same commands or the same expectations or even the same mission of the early apostles. You know, I, I hear this argument come in different forms sometimes that wasn't that great commission really just given to, to them? I mean, weren't these commands to go to all nations and make disciples, um, teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you, you know, lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age? That, that was really mostly for them, right? I mean, it's not really us, that's apostles. And the answer to that is yes and no. Obviously, they had a unique role. And as I shared with you last week or a couple of weeks before, the specific role of these apostles is not a repeatable thing. Those who were personally with Jesus, those that Jesus personally chose to represent him and launch the church, yes. But when the Holy Spirit came, part of the prophetic promise of the Holy Spirit is that God would pour out his Spirit on all flesh. And all would prophesy. Now we, in our mixed up crazy pseudo-Christian age, have lost the definition biblically of what prophesy is. Prophesy doesn't mean, you know, you can call this 1-800 number, I can prophesy to you about your future, or that I'm going to write articles about, you know, which nation is going to invade Israel first, and and how the end of times is going to be, and what the next red moon is going to be, or whatever. Prophecy is the declaration of biblical truth. And when the Holy Spirit came, God's Spirit enabled all of His people young and old, male and female, everybody everywhere, to prophesy that everyone can now speak of the truth of God, that knows God, that's been transformed by God. So it inaugurates a new era of the Spirit that equips all believers. So yes, the Holy Spirit called out and equipped and empowered and did miraculous things through those first group of apostles, but there's also a new era of Holy Spirit empowering that is for every believer everywhere. Now, you, should, you, you probably know if you studied much of it in the Old Testament, not everybody that was a follower of God uh, or part of what we might call the people of God received the Holy Spirit in the same way. I mean, here's a good example, a good case study is Numbers chapter 11. This is with Moses. Now, Moses did. Moses certainly had the Spirit of God at work in him and, and the Spirit of God's power all around him. And here's what happens in Numbers chapter 11, verse 24. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people, and he placed them around the tent, the tent of meetings. This is tabernacle. The Lord came down in the cloud, and he spoke to him, and he took some of the spirit that was on him, that was on Moses, and he put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. What does that mean? That the Holy Spirit would visit for his purposes intermittently, By his own sovereign will and empower those he wanted, at the times in which he wanted, to do the things he wanted them to do. Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad, the other named Medad, and the Spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Like, dude, they shouldn't be doing that, right? That's only your job. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to them, Are you jealous for my sake? would that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Think about that for a moment. Moses, his hope, his dream, his prayer, would that everyone would speak the truth for the sake of God's glory, for the goodness of mankind. Would that all represented him. And Moses and the elders returned to the camp. Well, Moses' hope is now being realized when the Holy Spirit falls at Pentecost. Well, that all would be prophets, that everyone who's in Christ, who's been baptized into his body, now filled with his spirit, would speak of Christ, speak of the life and the death and the resurrection, speak of the kingdom and the king, speak of the new life to come and how you can participate in it. It's realized. What happened at Pentecost was also, in a sense, the very first revival, now in your notes, I want you to know there's the most important asterisk I've probably ever placed in a set of notes, so if you have a highlighter or a pen, you know, circle it, highlight it. Revival is also one of the most misused words in modern Christianity. Revival is not that event that takes place if you were in church 40 years ago from Sunday to Sunday, if you were in church 30 years ago from Sunday to Wednesday, if you were in church 20 years ago, Sunday and Monday night only, or a Saturday evening, Sunday morning conference. You can't schedule it. It doesn't happen. You don't program it. It can't be manipulated. It can't be controlled. When when I say revival here, what I'm talking about is a unique manifestation of God's Spirit wherein or whereby God enables his people to do something specific for his sake. It's not inconsistent with, it's consistent with the scriptures, but it is a unique empowering of God, special times, special places. This is by far the greatest of those but we will see further accounts both in scripture and also we know in history of when God has visited his people in special power when God's spirit visits and empowers the message given the truth of the gospel when God begins to create in us genuine holiness through repentance the shedding of the old and the putting on of the new boldness and obedience with the gospel when God begins to work in certain ways incredible things happen what implications are there for us we pray for that, we seek that, we desire that, we wait for that. Meanwhile, we we are faithful. We are faithful. We continue to be faithful. So it's the first. But ultimately, its meaning is all wrapped up in the gospel. What does Pentecost mean? When they say, what does this mean? Peter's going to answer that, and I'm going to answer that with his words next week in chapter 2, verses 13 through 40. The gospel will soon be proclaimed, and this is the meaning of it. How is a person saved? It's just what Jesus said. This is a work of God, supernaturally orchestrated by His Holy Spirit, the effects of which are also supernatural. We are not who we used to be. Our hearts are not what they used to be. And our desires are not what they used to be. And our ability is not what it used to be. But God, who saves us, gives us both the will and the ability to do what pleases Him. There's the Holy Spirit in us. And so we'll talk about how the Holy Spirit both causes and creates salvation, but also causes and creates sanctification. Because it's our guarantee of glorification all the way to the Father. So without Pentecost, then, if this event doesn't happen, what could we say? How crucial, how important was this moment? Well, without Pentecost, there would be no mission of the church. There'd be no preaching, at least not effective preaching. I mean, there's always going to be people talking, bloviating, sharing opinions, but there would be no powerful, Christ-focused empowered, Holy Spirit-driven gospel preaching. There'd be no miracles, because these miracles aren't because of Peter or James or John, they're because of the Holy Spirit. There'd be no worldwide church, because this is when the church began. And Jesus would not be true. He would not be true. I mean, He promised this. He told them this. Before His death, He said, this is what's going to happen. Can you imagine that Jesus' death... And Jesus' resurrection will be invalidated because the Holy Spirit doesn't come? No. This is the critical moment. So what's our conclusion to this as believers today? What about me and you? Well, because of Pentecost, we know that we also have God's abiding presence. He said He was in the Holy Spirit. He promised that. Holy Spirit's not a force, by the way. I was reading this troubling Uh, survey that's been done across Southern Baptist life, actually evangelical life. It wasn't just Southern Baptist, but evangelical. Evangelical loosely means, at least theoretically, people accept the Bible as written. People believe that the only way to God is through Jesus Christ. know, there's some fundamental beliefs that would establish what it means to be loosely evangelical, and that covers a lot of denominations. But it was shocking the percentage of people who claim to be evangelical who believe things like this. God created Jesus, or Jesus was the first person God created. That, that's a heresy of the first degree. Um, we'll talk about the Trinity more as we move through, but the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit have always existed. God in His triune reality is a pre-existent God, Father, Son, and Spirit, or that the Holy Spirit is an impersonal force This is just the way of describing God's power at work. Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force that we direct or or manipulate or or that simply flows through us. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, deserving our honor, our respect, our, our worship. The Holy Spirit is God's presence with us, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit with us. We have that abiding spirit. Because of Pentecost, we too, write this down, we have supernatural power. And maybe you should put in parentheses, at least we have supernatural power available to us. I guess if there were one point I would want to establish about the preaching of Peter, the preaching of Paul, the preaching of Philip, the preaching of Stephen, these great sermons that we see in Acts, we should not credit the response to the great skill, the oratory skill, the persuasiveness, the charisma of these speakers. Okay, this, is, this, is, this is supernatural. This, this is God at work. This is God speaking through them. This is God making the message fall hard on people. This is God breaking through. This is God changing minds, God changing hearts. God's doing the miraculous. God causing the word to spread. We also have supernatural power to accomplish this. And fundamentally, here's why I believe this. Jesus said this. When he gave the Great Commission, it was bracketed by by two promises. Lo, I'm with you always, to the end of the age. And when he told them to go and make disciples, to the end of the age, this work has not yet been completed. The supernatural work of God to make disciples among all nations has not yet been completed, or else our mission would be done, we would no longer be here we still have that power to accomplish the mission. It's not just a first century power. It's not just a first century church that ought to be su- supernatural or spiritually power, powerful. It's a modern church. We have supernatural power. Because at Pentecost, we too can seek and receive the filling of the Holy Spirit. That God's Spirit would renew us. That He would fill us again. That He would enable us again to do something remarkable. To speak powerfully. To stand boldly. We need to be praying for that. Our times are changing, aren't they? The culture around us is shifting, isn't it? We need to pray and seek the Holy Spirit's filling that we might be faithful to the task, that we might be successful with the mission, that we might be able to accomplish what God has commanded. And because of Pentecost, every spirit-baptized believer takes part in, is responsible for your role in the Great Commission. You will be my witnesses. When you receive power, you will be my witnesses, Jesus said in Acts 1-8. You will be. You will be. When you and I look at Pentecost, we don't look back dispassionately at a history lesson, as fascinating as it may be. We don't look back just simply as scholars trying to unravel difficult biblical texts. We look back and say, thank you, God, for sending your spirit. Thank you, God, for baptizing us into Christ. Thank you for making us one family, one people. We believe in one Savior, one King, one Lord. We share one common faith, the gospel that we have received that we now share with one another. And we are united together in one baptism. We've got a mission, and that mission requires Holy Spirit power we were called to live a certain life. That life requires Holy Spirit power. We're called to be witnesses. We're called to be disciples. We don't do that without the Holy Spirit. So we pray and we seek that. Again, the evidence, there's Peter standing there, lifting up his voice, addressing them. That's the Holy Spirit that made Peter that way. Did he obey? Was he faithful? sure. But it's the Holy Spirit at work in him that transformed that person into that person. May it be so of us. I'm going to ask if you'd pray with me this morning, just wherever you are. His Word, His Spirit today demands a response from us. Will you ask of God to reveal to you by His Spirit even now, what do you want me to do? What, What do I need to seek? What is it you want to do in me? What do you want to do through me? Pray and ask God that. You know, sometimes our model of church is unhelpful in that we get to the end and we hear God's word proclaimed and, and God's spirit is speaking to us, and we're in such a rush to leave because that's the end of the service, right? We're done. It's time we go home that we don't respond. And real worship is bound up in response. There's a rhythm here. Revelation of God to us and our response to it. Listen, I shared some of these things with you. Here's my guess. Some of you in this room who've used the title, descriptor of Christian in your life really wonder if it's true because you've never seen any power in it. Never seen any power in it. I'm not talking about power to do miracles or to heal somebody i'm talking about the power to overcome sin in your life to live the new life or even to want to i mean you might pass a pop quiz on basic beliefs but could you testify that the spirit is at work in your life that the spirit of god assures you that you belong to christ that the spirit of christ in you is shaping you into the image of christ that, that the spirit in you is making you uncomfortable with sin worldliness or just wasted time that the holy spirit in you is stirring you up to something bigger than you for his sake for his kingdom's sake for his glory have you experienced the power of the holy spirit the holy spirit's a transforming spirit He doesn't simply dwell in us. He changes us. He renews us. Are you truly in Christ? Examine yourself to see. Maybe some of you are sitting here this morning and you've never heard anything like this before at all. I want you to know that true Christianity isn't just about trying to fix some behavior in your life, trying to clean up some rough spots. And it's not just simply about believing in the right set of facts or arguments. It goes way beyond trying to do good things and be a good person or, you know, all that. And it goes way beyond a generic belief that there's a God out there somewhere. Being a Christian truly is supernatural. It's when the Spirit of God grabs hold of you, convicts you of sin, shares with you hope, gives you the ability to have faith, and you respond and say, yes, God, yes. Yes, I want to follow Christ. I want to follow Christ. I want your spirit in me. I want to be changed. I want to be made new. I want to be everything I can't be on my own. Is that you today? And maybe for the majority of us in this room who are truly in Christ, we belong to Him because He has baptized us into Him, I pray that God will create an ever-growing dissatisfaction in us with superficial Christianity, subpar Christianity, spiritless Christianity. For me, for you. we We just can't be comfortable with that. I pray that over these next several weeks as we go through the book of Acts, we'll hold up our version of Christianity to the version we see there. And we'll reject one and embrace the other. Recognizing that God has not changed and his desires have not changed, his spirit has not changed, his mission has not changed, his purposes in the world have not changed. We have pray that His Spirit will reignite genuine New Testament, Holy Spirit-filled, empowered Christianity in us. Ask God what He wants you to do, how He wants you to respond. Father, You are sovereign and You are good. You rule over creation, history, past tense, and all the future that is to come. Father, we see an unfolding of your divine plan. And we're so grateful now that we live in this era of your spirit. That you've given your spirit to us, your spirit to all true believers. You've baptized us by your spirit into the body that is Christ. We know John the Baptist said that. I'm going to baptize you with water, but one's going to come that's going to baptize you with spirit. Father, we we don't always or even often experience the power of that Spirit in us. Perhaps it's because we're not walking in the Spirit or your Spirit is not a contentious Spirit to fight with us, to impose your will on us. Father, perhaps it's because we don't desire it. We're comfortable as we are. We're comfortable with the level of Christianity that we experience or the level of church or the effectiveness of mission that we we now see. Father, I know that we're not in a waiting stage anymore. We're not sitting in that upper room waiting for something to happen, waiting for your spirit to do it. We're in the obedient stage to go be witnesses. We know your Holy Spirit's there. Lord, we pray for filling. I pray for filling in me that would drive out all the parts of me that aren't consistent with the parts of you you desire to create in me. A sort of feeling that supplants self-sufficiency with Holy Spirit power. Um, A sort of feeling that doesn't create arrogance but confidence and boldness in the gospel, in your protection, in your providence, in your mission. A sort of assurance that no word is wasted when it comes to sharing the good news. That you're out there, you're doing, you're working. Lord, I pray for something personal and I pray for something collective for us. And Lord, may, maybe it starts today with just a desire for it, a seeking of it. Lord, if there's anybody in this room who's not been baptized into your spirit, I mean, he just doesn't have Christ. They haven't repented. They haven't turned to you for salvation. They haven't heard or received the gospel. that gives them new life, life to the full, and eternal life with you. And, Father, I pray that today you would create that desire in them and say, I want that. Give me that. Give me you, God. I want to know you. I want to know Jesus. I want the power of the Holy Spirit in me. I want a new life. pray they respond. Father, it's awesome to think that because Jesus ascended to your right hand, ever interceding for us, right there, we get to come with you boldly, before you boldly. And that we have right here your presence, your Holy Spirit, to do everything you've commanded. Wow. That's awesome. Lord, be glorified in me, in us, and in your church. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.